Hello, and welcome to AGRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to talk about the periprocedural management of patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, and we'll talk about what that is. But this is from the recent release. In fact, it hasn't even been published yet, but the head of publication release of the new American College of Cardiology guidelines for this. And this was published. The lead author was Doherty. It was published uh, ahead of print and will be published soon in the uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Uh, and the title of the article is the 2017 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway for Periprocedural Management of Anticoagulation in Patients with Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation. So really something that we deal with quite a bit, patients coming in for surgery uh, who are on anticoagulation for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. When do they need to stop it? Do they need to stop it? Should they be bridged? And when to restart it afterwards? Should they be bridged until a restart? Etc. So we'll touch on all of these things, uh, kind of summarizing for you what was published in the American College of Cardiology document. Before we get started, I do want to tell you about a fascinating episode of This American Life. If you're not familiar with This American Life, it is an unbelievably well-done podcast produced by Ira Glass and WBEZ Chicago. It's released every Sunday. It's available for free on iTunes. And this most recent episode from January 15th had to do with a woman who had a muscular wasting and fat wasting syndrome. Doctors couldn't figure out what it was, and she kind of did some research of her own, discovered what she thought it was, was told she couldn't be correct totally, she was wrong, she was crazy, and of course, in the end, when she finally got someone to test her, it turned out she was right. She also thought, kind of crazily, she had this idea that this famous hurdler uh, Olympic athlete was uh, who was incredibly muscular and was winning medals in the hurdles had the same mutation that she had, but in a way that allowed this woman to be famous and, and incredibly successful in sports while it made her almost unable to walk. And she thought, well, for some reason, based on kind of how their clothes fit and the way their muscles were cut, that she thought they had the same disease. Again, people thought she was totally nuts. And in the end, it turned out that she was right. So really fascinating story, but also a good reminder of how in medicine we get very sure of ourselves and what we think is true and often can lose track of the fact that there's a lot we don't know and a lot that we think we know that may turn out to be wrong. So probably worth giving some credence to people when they call what we know into question. You never know when they may turn out to be right. All right, check that out. This American Life from January 15th, 2017. And now let's talk about the management of patients on anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. So these are the six things that are going to be covered here. Who needs chronic anticoagulation? When should you interrupt it? How should you interrupt it? When should you bridge? And if you're going to bridge, how should you bridge? And then how should you restart it? All right. So first, let's start about this question of what is AFib? So you may or may not know, atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia worldwide. It increases with age. One in four people will have it during their lives. That's pretty wild, 25% of people. Healthy 85-year-olds, so totally healthy, otherwise healthy 85-year-olds, have a prevalence approaching 18%. Anticoagulation is recommended for most people. And it's because of the risk of stroke and systemic embolism from the clot that can form when the atrium is not 
keeping blood flowing regularly. So especially in the left atrial appendage, you have clot formation due to the fibrillation of the atrium when it's not beating appropriately. So the question is, should patients who are need to be anticoagulated, should they be on an oral anticoagulate? oral anticoagulant or just an antiplatelet like aspirin. And so the score to figure this out that is now the preferred score used to be the CHADS-2, now the CHADS-VASC score, and that measures several things. So it measures the C is for CHF, so it measures heart, looks at heart failure. The H is for hypertension, and that's defined as a systolic greater than 160. The A is for age over 75, and if you're age over 75, you actually get two points for that, so it's CHA and a little sub two, so the A age over 75 counts for two points. The D is for diabetes. The S is for stroke or TIA or thromboembolism, and that also counts for two points. And then we go to the VASC part. The V is for vascular disease. The second A is for age over 65 but less than 75. So for that, you only get one point. So in this score, if you're over 75, you get two points. If you're between 65 and 75, you get one point. And then the final uh, S sub C is for sex category, which means if you're female, you get one point. And so we'll talk about what those different points uh, correlate to in a minute, but that's the score that's primarily used. Now, again, what we're talking about here is non-valvular AFib, and that is defined as AFib in the absence of rheumatic mitral stenosis, mechanical or a bioprosthetic valve, or a mitral valve repair. So having work done on the valve, having a mechanical valve, having an infection that's harmed the valve, all of that can lead to valvular AFib, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about non-valvular AFib. And some trials that have looked at this will include moderate or, or worse, so moderate to severe MR as, uh, that causes AFib as being valvular AFib, and some don't count that. So that's a little bit of a gray area. So when you do that score, the CHADS-VASC score, the more points you have, the higher your risk of an embolism, whether that's a stroke or another systemic embolism. And so the thought is that people with non-valvular AFib who have a CHADS-VASC score greater than or equal to 2 should be anticoagulated. And there's some debate about people with, a, with one point. People with no points probably should not. People with one point, it's debatable. People with two or more should be. The other thing we need to take into account is the type of anticoagulation. So when you are taking an oral anticoagulant, the main choices are going to be either a vitamin K antagonist, which in the United States is almost always going to be warfarin or Coumadin. Those are the same thing. Or a direct oral anticoagulant. And these include rivaroxaban, which is also known as Xarelto, and that's a direct 10A inhibitor, direct factor 10A inhibitor. Apixaban, which is also known as Eliquis, also a direct factor 10A inhibitor. Edoxaban, which is also known as Savesa and Lixiana, which is a direct 10A uh, inhibitor as well. And then Dabigatran, which is Pradaxa, which is a direct thrombin inhibitor. So Dabigatran being a different pathway there, direct thrombin inhibitor, and that's also Pradaxa. So those are the direct oral, oral anticoagulants. There are some IV uh, forms of, of, of these uh, direct thrombin inhibitors and direct uh, 10A inhibitors, but obviously patients aren't going to be on them as an outpatient. So when deciding whether to stop, whether it's warfarin or whether it's a direct oral anticoagulant, obviously what you need to do is take into account their risk of bleeding if you continue it and their risk of stroke if you stop it.
stroke or embolus. And if there's a worry of bleeding, of course, the other question is what are the consequences of that bleed? So a bleed into the big toe is slightly less concerning than a bleed into the head or around the spinal cord. So the risk of bleeding is often estimated uh, various specialty societies, orthopedics, neurosurgery, et cetera, will uh, publish risk of bleeding of procedures within their specialty. The consequences of bleeding are a kind of clinician judgment. And obviously, uh, you need to be much more careful, as we said, with neuraxial, intracranial, or spinal bleeding compared to peritoneal, for example. In addition to the risk inherent in any given surgery for bleeding, some more than others, there are patient factors that can put someone at risk for bleeding. And there's a score that helps remember these or helps take these into account, and that's the HASBLED score. That's H-A-S-B-L-E-D. And these are things that put an individual patient at greater risk for bleeding. And if someone has uh, greater than or equal to three of these factors, it correlates with an in, a significantly increased risk of bleeding events around a procedure. Now, these stand for the H is for hypertension, systolic greater than 160. The A is for abnormal renal or liver function. The S is for prior stroke. The B is for a predisposition to bleeding or anemia, so the B for bleeding, meaning a predisposition to bleeding. The L is for a labile INR or someone on a vitamin K antagonist like warfarin. The E is for being elderly, and that's defined as age greater than 65. And the D is for drugs, and that could be that you're on an antiplatelet, you're on a regular NSAID, you drink heavy alcohol, which they define as greater than eight drinks per week, or use illicit drugs. And those are all the things that fit under D. And as I said, a score greater than or equal to three is predictive of bleeding events. Other things not included in this score, but that should be taken into account because obviously they can predispose someone to increased risk of bleeding are whether someone had a prior bleed or a bleeding event within the past three months, whether someone has a platelet abnormality, either qualitative or quantitative, whether someone has an INR above the therapeutic range, and whether someone has a bleed history with prior bridging or a bleed history with a similar procedure in the past. So in other words, let's say that someone is having a procedure that's relatively low risk of bleeding, it's considered low risk, and yet this person has had that same procedure in the past and had a problem with bleeding, that would obviously be concerning. And the reason we really need to carefully take all this into account is that it's not so simple just to say, well, we don't want anybody to bleed, so let's take people off. People, depending on their CHADS-VASC score, can have a quite high risk of embolus, and it's not a benign thing to take them off and bridge them. So a couple of studies, there's one called Bruise Control and one called Compare, looked at continuing Coumadin versus having a TI, which stands for a temporary interruption, uh, of the Coumadin with bridging and found actually more bleeding in the temporary interruption and bridging. So in other words, people who continued their Coumadin and then had their procedure versus people who stopped it and had and were bridged, actually the people who were bridged ended up with more bleeding in these trials. So it's not a benign thing to stop and bridge. So that's why we really want to think hard about whether someone should stop and if so, how to do it safely. So taking all these things into account, for vitamin K antagonists, so for warfarin, the recommendation is if it's a low-risk surgery and there are no patient risk factors, so they have either a low score on the Hasbled or no points on the Hasbled scale, and it's a low-risk surgery for bleeding, don't stop the warfarin. Just keep it going. If 
it's an intermediate or high-risk surgery for bleeding, or if it's there are uncertain risk to the surgery. So not a, not every surgery has a known risk. So if if there's just if it's not known how risky the surgery is, or if it's intermittent, intermediate or high risk, and there are patient risk factors, for example, that has blood score, uh, then you would stop the vitamin K antagonist. And then in between, if there's a low-risk surgery and the patient does have risk factors or it's an uncertain risk surgery with no risk factors, then you have to consider and use your clinical judgment. It's not clear to definitely stop or definitely not. Now, what you want to do is draw an INR, if someone's on warfarin, five to seven days before the surgery or the procedure, and this will help you identify people who are super therapeutic, so who have an INR greater than three, because if you were not planning on stopping, but their INR is greater than three, you may want to cut their dose so that they're not super therapeutic at the time of the procedure. And then if you are going to stop, you obviously want to know what their INR is so you can decide when to stop. So how do you do that? How do you when do you tell people to stop? I think we all are usually told five to seven days, but it's not quite that simple. So if someone's INR is subtherapeutic, if they're between 1.5 and 1.9 and you want them normalized, then you would stop three to four days before the procedure. And if they are therapeutic, so their INR is between two and three, you would stop five days before. And if they're higher than three, again, you may need to stop even more than five days. And then you'll, no matter what, want to recheck an INR within one day of the procedure to make sure they are indeed normalized if you want them completely normalized. So that's for vitamin K antagonists. How about the direct oral anticoagulants? So these have shorter half-lives, much shorter half-lives than warfarin, and so you need to stop them much less uh, a shorter time before, but it's very dependent on renal function, and that's really key. So they can have much longer durations of action in the setting of renal dysfunction. For a long time, there were no reversal agents for these, and it was a little scary. But we finally do have some both uh, present and on the horizon. So iterucizumab is a reversal agent that is available for dabigatran. And there are other reversal agents that are currently in trials. So andexanet-alpha and siraparentag. And of course, I may be completely butchering those pronunciations, but those are both currently in trials. So again, as I said, renal function plays a huge role here. In end-stage renal disease, there's not a lot of data. So uh, what you can do is check a dilute thrombin time for dabigatran, if someone's on dabigatran. And if they're on the uh, direct 10A inhibitors, you can check agent-specific calibrated chromogenic anti-factor 10A activity. That's for apixaban, adoxaban, and rivaroxaban. So those are tests you're going to obviously want to ask your lab about, make sure you have them. But if someone if you, is, is in end-stage renal disease, they're on dialysis, and they're getting a direct uh, oral anticoagulant, there are ways to figure out what kind of residual anticoagulation they have before the procedure if you need to know that. For uh, patients who are low-risk surgery or have no patient risk factors, then the recommendation, just as with VKAs, uh, vitamin K antagonists, is not to stop at all. So keep keep them on it. Um, but what you would do is give it during the trough. So if it's a daily dose and they take it in the morning, do the procedure late at night. If it's a BID dosing, do it right before their next dose would be due. So you can therefore reduce the risk of bleeding by giving them, having them do the procedure during the trough of their dose. Obviously, this doesn't apply to warfarin. There is no trough when someone is, has an, uh, 
uh, on a long acting agent like warfarin. But for these, because they're, they're much shorter acting, you do have a trough. So if it's a low risk procedure and no patient risk factors, go ahead and keep them on it, do the procedure during the trough if possible. And then for everyone else, meaning if it's a medium to high risk surgery or if there are patient risk factors, then you're going to want to look at their creatinine clearance and then look at the charts that are published specifically for each of these agents, which will tell you exactly how far in advance to stop it based on their creatinine clearance. All right, let's move on to the question of bridging. It's not an easy call whether to bridge or not. For direct oral anticoagulants, you usually don't have to bridge because they're, again, very short-acting, and so there isn't much time between stopping them and when you can go ahead and do the surgery. But for uh, warfarin, it's much more common since you're stopping five to seven days usually before the procedure. So what is often done is to use the CHADS-VASC score to estimate the thrombotic risk, and then for people with a higher thrombotic risk, obviously you'd be more likely to bridge for people with a lower thrombotic risk, you would be less likely. This has not been validated preoperatively, though, and so that's just important to keep in mind. But the recommendations are that people with a CHADS-VASC score less than or equal to 4 and no history of a prior ischemic stroke, TIA, or systemic embolus, those people have less than a 5% thrombotic event risk per year. So very, very low for just five or six days, and so usually they would not need bridging. Again, those are people with a CHADS-VASC score less than four and no, no history of prior events, and they therefore have a less than 5% risk over the whole year, probably safe to go five or six days without bridging. People with a CHADS-VASC score of five or six or a prior history of stroke TIA or systemic embolus more than three months out have a 5 to 10% risk per year. And so here's where it gets a little tricky and where you really need to use clinical judgment. So the recommendation is that if they have an increased risk of bleeding, then don't bridge them. If there's not an increased risk of bleeding, but they also don't have a history of stroke TIA or systemic embolus, then still don't bridge them. But if they do have a prior history of stroke TIA or systemic embolus, that's when you would consider bridging, even if it's low bleeding risk. So that's, uh, that's what you basically want to take into account more than anything is their, if they're in that intermediate category, 5 to 10% per year, CHAS-VAS score 5 or 6, the question is, have they had this prior history that puts them really at, at risk even in that short amount of time? And if so, you would consider bridging. All right. With a CHADS-VASC score of 7 to 9 or recent, meaning within three months, stroke TIA or systemic embolus, these are the people that you really would want to consider bridging. Now, it is important to point out here that the evidence would suggest that bridging is associated with definitely increased risk of bleeding without a ton of protection against thrombosis. But the studies that have looked at this really haven't included those at really high risk. And that's why the recommendation in these guidelines is for those at really high risk with those high CHADS-VASC scores, it may actually be worth bridging. But it, it is important to know it's not like there's great data for that. So if you're going to bridge, the most common way to do it is either with low molecular weight heparin, like Lovenox, or unfractionated heparin, meaning a heparin drip. So how are you going to decide between them? Well, they have been looked at head-to-head, and it turns out that Lovenox has been associated with decreased length of stay and similar bleeding rates compared to heparin in these patients. So 
if all other things are equal and you can use either one, you'd probably want to go with Lovenox. But Lovenox is much longer acting. A heparin drip you can just turn off. And so if you think you may have to go to the OR relatively quickly uh, then, and you're, or you're not sure when the procedure will take place and you want to be able to react quickly, then maybe better to go with the heparin drip instead of the Lovenox. Also, poor renal function is a, makes low molecular weight heparin uh, difficult to dose, and so people with poor renal function may do better just on a heparin drip. And the cutoff there is really going to be a creatinine clearance less than 30, where we're really unlikely to use low molecular weight heparin. There are some guidelines for using it in people with a creatinine clearance between 15 and 30, but you have to be really careful, and I think most people shy away from doing that. Anyone with a history of HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, you would obviously have to use a non-heparin agent like bivalirudin. So if someone's on unfractionated heparin, you can stop about four to six hours prior to the procedure. For low molecular weight heparin, you need to stop at least 24 hours before. You can, if you want to, obviously measure the residual effect from the heparin drip with APTTs. And for low molecular weight heparin, you can look at a specific antifactor 10A assay. And then for resuming post-procedure, so you obviously are going to make sure that there's hemostasis, there's not ongoing bleeding. And then again, just as when you're thinking about stopping, you need to think about the bleeding consequences. So what if this person bleeds? Bigger deal in the head or around the spinal cord. And then patient-specific factors. So does this patient have platelet dysfunction, et cetera? Usually you can restart warfarin in the first 24 hours after the procedure because it takes... 24 to 48 hours to start working, and then up to five days for full effect. So it's not like they're going to immediately be anticoagulated. Obviously, if there are bleeding complications, then you would not start within the first 24 hours. Or if it's a very high-risk procedure, or if there are patient-specific factors putting them at high risk. And of course, if there are other procedures planned, you wouldn't want to start warfarin uh, again. Now, you want to take into account that a lot of things can affect warfarin levels, and a lot of these things happen in the post-procedure environment. So changes in hepatic function, changes in antibiotic use, nutritional status, other medications, all of these need to be taken into account when deciding when to start and what dose to start at. Something that comes up a lot is the question of whether when you restart warfarin, do you need to also start a heparin drip out of fear of making the patient initially hypercoagulable by blocking protein C and S before you block other factors. Now, this is talked about a lot. These guidelines do not mention that. They don't talk about doing that at all. They are fine with the idea of just going ahead and restarting warfarin without any additional anticoagulation along with it. So what about post-procedure bridging? The guidelines recommend only doing this for patients with moderate or high risk of stroke or thrombotic event, so patients with that higher end of the CHADS-VASC score. And if you're going to do this, when would you when would you start your heparin drip or your low molecular weight heparin or your non-heparin alternative like bival? So kind of the same as when you would have started anyway. Within 24 hours, if there's a low bleeding risk procedure, at least 48 to 72 hours if it's a high-risk procedure, and if it's both a high bleeding risk and a high thrombotic risk, so that's where it's tricky. You're worried about clotting and bleeding at the same time, then what you can do a couple of things. You can start a heparin drip without a bolus, so thought to be a little less risk of bleeding, but still some protection. You can go in between and give a prophylactic dose like you would do just for uh, DVT prophylaxis, either with heparin or with uh, Lovenox. 
Or you could just start warfarin and then knowing it won't take full effect for several days. But that is a tricky situation when someone's at high thrombotic risk and high bleeding risk. All right. So the highest risk for a post-op bleed when you're bridging is when the INR gets therapeutic. So let's talk about this. What you do is you start the bridge and then at some point you're going to start warfarin and if you and then you're going to check INRs and you're going to keep your heparin drip or your Lovenox, however you're bridging, going until your INR is therapeutic. So you're bridging up until you're therapeutic on warfarin, then you can stop the bridging agent. But studies have found that the highest risk time for bleeding is when the INR gets therapeutic. So in other words, now you're on two agents. You're, you're a therapeutic on warfarin, but you're still on that heparin drip. And so you have to really be careful in that time window. So again, what you're going to do once you get therapeutic on warfarin is stop whatever you were bridging with. Unless if you happen to be using Argaturban to bridge till you have a therapeutic INR, that will raise the INR, as will bivalirudin. So if you're bridging with either of these, generally you're going to shoot for a higher INR, like an INR of 3, and then you would stop your bivalirudin or your Argaturban check an INR off it to make sure you actually are now therapeutic, but you're definitely going to want to talk to your pharmacist and your lab about the best way to do this. Usually, if you've interrupted a direct oral anticoagulant, you're not going to need to bridge because, again, they will take effect very quickly once you restart them. Plus, you don't want to start heparin and a direct oral anticoagulant because then you're going to have that dual anticoagulation again. Your direct oral anticoagulant will take effect very quickly and you'll be on a heparin drip. You'll be in effect double anticoagulated and you'll have a much higher bleeding risk. And it turns out there's actually not really any added thrombotic protection. So for direct oral anticoagulants, what you normally are going to want to do is restart full dose the morning after a procedure, of course, assuming that there is hemostasis and it's a relatively low bleeding risk procedure. So you would start the next day with a full dose, except for dabigatran in a substudy of the RELY trial from 2015. That was by Duquettis and colleagues. Uh, they found that actually you could start a smaller dose the night of the procedure uh, and, of course, it would have to be more than four hours after any neuraxial blockade or instrumentation was done, and then full dose the following morning. Of course, that's for low risk. For high-risk procedures, you would wait at least two to three days to restart. And with this uh, algorithm in that trial, they found the major bleed risk was 1.8%, and the th risk of thromboembolism was 0.2%, and that's similar to what it is when bridging, with, uh, bridging back to a vitamin K antagonist. So uh, you're not really uh, in any worse shape. And then similar studies looking at rivaroxaban, uh, apixaban, adoxaban have shown that they compare favorably with VKAs without bridging, just with restarting the morning after a low-risk procedure or two to three days after a high-risk procedure. Um, and there's no, with those studies, they have not done the smaller dose the night of. That was only with dabigatran. As I mentioned before, obviously, if a patient is going to have another procedure, so if they come in on a direct oral anticoagulant and it is stopped for the procedure and then there's another procedure planned, or if based on the surgery or procedure they had, they're going to have a prolonged inability to take oral meds, then they may need to use a parenteral agent to essentially be bridged after the surgery 
even though usually they wouldn't with direct oral anticoagulants, but in these settings they would. And so similarly, you can start an unfractionated heparin drip or low molecular weight heparin when you would normally start the direct oral anticoagulant. So for a low-risk procedure the next morning or for a high-risk procedure two to three days after the procedure. And then once they're able to restart their direct oral anticoagulant, you either stop the heparin drip and give them their dose of direct oral anticoagulant, or if it's Lovenox, then what you would do is wait until their next Lovenox dose is due and then give the direct oral anticoagulate. Rivaroxaban, just to remember, has to be taken with a meal to have full effect. And then also important to know that rivaroxaban and apixaban can both be crushed and given through a feeding tube. So even if a patient can't take a pill by mouth, if they can take uh, enteral feeds, they can take their direct oral anticoagulant if it's rivaroxaban or apixaban. A couple other points. During a temporary pause in anticoagulation for AFib for a procedure, patients can still get DVT prophylaxis, either with unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. Or you can actually use lower doses of a direct oral anticoagulant, like a pixaban 2.5 milligrams twice a day, a doxaban 15 or 30 milligrams daily, or dibigatran 150 or 220 milligrams daily. Uh, you can give those which are lower doses than normal, uh, and those uh, can serve as DVT prophylaxis for patients who are already on direct oral anticoagulants, and they've been shown to have similar bleeding rates as Lovenox for DVT prophylaxis. You cannot use a direct oral anticoagulant while an epidural catheter is in place, and according to ASRA, uh, you should wait 24 hours after a spinal has been done or a catheter has been removed, an epidural catheter has been removed before starting a direct oral anticoagulant. And that's a conservative estimate. Uh, there are, there's some thought that you don't have to be that conservative, but according to ASRA, and certainly to be as safe as possible, that's what we would go with. And then the last thing that we'll talk about is after cardiac surgery, because there are some different uh, factors here. So there's a big trial, the Realign trial, was published in the New England Journal in 2013 by Eichelboom and colleagues. And it was stopped early because there were more thrombotic events and more bleeding in the dibigatran group compared to warfarin. So they were looking at after cardiac surgery, anticoagulating with either dibigatran or warfarin, and these were people with mechanical valves. And so based on this trial, all direct oral anticoagulants are contraindicated in patients with mechanical valves. So then you have this question of what about patients who are on a direct oral anticoagulant, they come in and have valve surgery. So let's say they had AFib, they had non-valvular AFib, and now they come in and have a mechanical valve put in for another reason, and now what do you do? And so the recommendation is they should transition to warfarin. Even though they were on direct oral anticoagulant beforehand, there's this concern about the risk of uh, thrombosis and bleeding with mechanical valves when you're on a direct oral anticoagulant. And so the recommendation is don't restart their direct oral anticoagulant, transition them to warfarin. And then the last question is people who have a CAB, who have a uh, coronary artery bypass surgery. So cardiac surgery, but not uh, touching their valves. So they come in, they were on a direct oral anticoagulant, and so a lot of people are restarting that for them uh, if they still need anticoagulation for AFib, but there's really not a lot of evidence one way or the other, so uh, that will kind of change in time or not depending on future studies. So cardiac surgery, summing that up, mechanical valves, people with mechanical valves should not get direct oral anticoagulants. They should just be on warfarin. Patients who have cardiac surgery that doesn't include valves probably 
can continue if they were on a direct oral anticoagulant beforehand. A lot of times these days, patients uh, who come in for any cardiac surgery who have AFib are getting a maze procedure or a left atrial appendage clipping, something to try to uh, permanently fix their AFib. Uh, but they're, uh, they're often not effective immediately after the surgery. Sometimes they're not effective ever. And so patients should still be anticoagulated until they are shown to be out of AFib for um, quite some time. And that can be managed postoperatively. All right. That is it for the management of non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Thanks for listening. I will be heading at the end of the week to the Society of Critical Care Medicine Conference in Hawaii quite a nice location this year. And uh, if anyone is there, if you'll be there, please find me, say hi, let me know if you listen to the show. I would love to meet you. Uh, You can see my picture on iTunes. I will not know yours, so please come up and introduce yourself uh, and let me know what you think about the show. Of course, you can go to the website, ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment. Let us know how do you bridge people. Do you follow these guidelines? Do you have a different way of doing it? Uh, And we can all learn from what you have to say. And of course, you can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C. On the website, you can also join the mailing list by going to the upper right-hand corner and clicking the link there where you will get a notification whenever there's a new episode and if there's anything else that I decide to send around. Thanks again for listening. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.